Some people are geniuses, and their genius is undeniable. And many of those undeniable geniuses had undeniably bizarre routines and habits that they felt somehow aided them in their pursuit to fully maximize their geniusness. To those of us who are undeniably non-genius, these habits and routines seem crazy or eccentric or preposterous. But then again, since the genius is undeniable, we're forced to throw up our non-genius hands in the air and say, well, it's weird, but you know what? You know what, genius? Whatever works. Whatever works for you. If it helps you extend your undeniable genius, then go for it. Take, for instance, Greek philosopher and mathematician Pythagoras. There's Pythagoras. You probably know him as the triangle theory guy, Pythagoras' theory. Uh, He is also considered the father of vegetarianism, which is a strange little badge of honor to also throw on there. But one vegetable that he refused to eat was beans. Pythagoras, who popularized vegetarianism, hated beans so much that he forbid his followers, his disciples, to eat or even touch them. They would have any beans, no beans for Pythagoras. But hey, whatever works, Mr. Greek genius. Or consider Albert Einstein. Undeniable genius, right? Did you know that he refused to wear socks? He considered them unnecessary, a waste of time. Okay, well, whatever works for you, Mr. My name is literally synonymous with genius. Go ahead, don't wear your socks. Or how about Beethoven? Um, His genius was fueled by frequent, frequent breaks in composing music to pace the floor of his room. That's not super weird. What is weird is that he kept tubs of water beside him and he would frequently just dump tubs of water on his head to, I don't know, wake him up or refreshen him or get the creative juice. I don't know. That's what he would do. It's very weird. But you know what, Mr. Musical Genius? Whatever works for you. And finally, my personal favorite, Ben Franklin, whose genius extended from politics to science to inventions to getting electrocuted by lightning, holding a kite with a key on it, to, you know, helping found one of the most powerful empires in the history of humankind. All of this genius was partly fueled by what he called air baths. What is an air bath, you might ask? Well, old Ben would stand in front of an open window for up to an hour pondering his latest genius idea. That's weird enough. But he would do it naked. (laughs) He would stand naked in front of his window and soak up the fresh air, and he would call it an air bath. But hey, you know what? Whatever works for you, brother, go ahead, give her. It's hard for us to diminish these strange and eccentric habits when the results are so obvious and so genius. We can say whatever works because they did apparently work. All of these habits and routine, however it worked, it seems to have worked. I'm not going to go ahead and dump buckets of water on my head while I'm writing my sermon or stop eating delicious bean-filled minestrone. I talked about that a couple. I love minestrone. I'm not going to stop eating beans, Pythagoras, sorry. And I'm not going to forego socks in the cold of Alberta winters. Although I might give Ben Franklin's naked window thing a shot. That sounds, <laughs> that sounds yeah, interesting, appealing. <laughs> yeah. We just got new neighbors across the road, so maybe I better wait a bit. But even if I don't ever try that or any of these crazy habits, I would be just as crazy to deny that these crazy habits worked. Apparently, if it works, maybe it's not so crazy after all, which brings us to Acts 14. Paul and Barnabas's first missions trip, the first trip where Gentiles are specifically targeted, has definitely been filled with roller coaster moments of thrilling victory and painful setbacks. What we'll see today is that there's a definite pattern to this roller coaster. Similar things keep happening over and over and over again from town to town to town as they move along through the area of Galatia. 
Many people who read the who, who read the events of Acts 13 and 14 will see insanity in the repeated actions of Paul and Barnabas. It's crazy to put yourself through this over and over. Every new town finds them getting treated harshly and abused terribly. Some would wonder why they continue demonstrating the routines they devote themselves to when those same routines always end in bloodshed and shame. Hey, Paul, why don't you be like Igor Stravinsky, the famous composer, and just stand on your head for 15 minutes a day? How, how about try that crazy routine? Or how about you be like Nikola Tesla and curl your toes, each toe, 100 times on each foot before you go to bed? Sounds crazy, but it worked for him. Why don't you try those rather than the routine you've got yourself in, the insane habit of preaching Jesus as the risen Messiah to a bunch of Galatians when you know that the Jews of the area of that city are going to try to murder you for it? Why do you keep putting yourself through this? It's insane. Why the habit of preaching and then fleeing? Why? Well, I'll tell you why. Because as with Pythagoras, Einstein, Beethoven, and Ben Franklin... It works because it works. That's why they keep putting themselves through it. We're going to divide Acts 14 into thirds. This morning, we're going to look at the first third and the final third. Next week, we're going to look at the middle third because it's got its own powerful lesson. The middle third is a really fascinating case study, and I didn't want to gloss over it. So we're going to look at Acts 14, 1 to 7, and then 19 to 28. And, and we'll see how Paul and Barnabas' purpose will be accomplished despite or rather maybe because of their crazy habit of opening themselves up to abuse and oppression. So let's read our first passage, verses 1 to 7. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual to the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country, where they continued to preach the good news. We'll stop there for now. First of all, going on missions trips is nothing unique to us. I mean, for our little church alone, we sponsor nine different missionaries. Just our little church. And there's I'm, dozens of others we could be supporting and sponsoring. But for us in our world, mission trips are nothing unique. They're still special, and they're still worthy of celebrating, but they're not unique. We've been doing this for thousands of years. But in the time prior to Paul and Barnabas, religions weren't like that. Religions were a local thing. Even in the Greek and Roman world, which spread throughout kind of the whole known from Africa around all the way into Europe, and it spread and spread, even in the Greek and Roman world, different gods were worshipped in different areas. Uh, as we'll see next week, the area of Asia Minor that Paul and Barnabas find themselves in now, they, their gods that they worshipped were Zeus and Hermes. That, that was their, those were their special gods in the area they find themselves in. Ephesus had a temple to Artemis. She was the special goddess there in Ephesus. Uh, there was a temple to Aphrodite in Corinth, which is why the women there had a reputation that Paul later felt the need to address. In that world, Babylonian gods were worshipped in Babylon, not in Crete. Egyptian gods were worshipped in Egypt, not in Athens. Even, even the Jewish god of gods was worshipped in Canaan and not throughout Rome. 
Even when lifestyles and philosophies were spread, gods remained localized. You didn't try to convert someone to worship of Zeus. You conquered them, and then they worshiped Zeus. That's, that's how it worked. You didn't spread the religion. You, you spread your, your nation, your power, your influence. Which means that the very pattern of Christians taking their belief system on the road for the express purpose of convincing non-Christians to become Christians was a totally new phenomenon. Totally new. Jewish people, they were scattered all over the, the Roman world, right? We, we know this. They, they were persecuted, and so they scattered all over the place. And as they scattered, they brought with them their Jewish customs and beliefs. They, they built synagogues. Wherever they went, they brought Jewishness with them. But that Jewishness didn't spread to the Gentiles around them. There'd be the odd God-fearing Gentile who was interested and would, would pop into synagogue on Saturday. But they didn't go out of their way to reach those Gentiles. Jewishness was for Jews. So, so Jewishness didn't, didn't spread. The Israelites didn't spread their beliefs. But through pioneers like Philip and Barnabas and Paul, uh, however, the kingdom of Jesus Christ absolutely did spread in this new way. It was a crazy new habit that these Christ followers started, taking your beliefs and going out to try to convince others to believe it as well. The question is, though, will it work? That's what, that's what chapters 13 and 14 are looking at. They're deciding to take it to the Gentiles, and the question remains, will it work? Over the past few weeks, we've seen this crazy new habit. Take our heroes first to the island of Cyprus. Here's the big map of missions. This is a new map of missions, by the way, uh, focused just on Paul's first missionary journey. It took our heroes first to the island of Cyprus. Here you can see they start in Antioch. They head down to Salamis and Paphos. That's on the island of Cyprus. Then they head over to Perga and to Antioch. That, that's our last couple of, of, of weeks of, of sermons. At both of those places where, where Paul preached, in Pisidian Antioch and in, in Paphos, in, in Cyprus, in both of those places, there was a definite mix of impressions made by the apostles and oppressions launched against the apostles. In both those places, Cyprus and Antioch, they made an impression and they felt oppression. In Cyprus, the impression was made on the most powerful man on the island, Sergius Paulus, who was the proconsul, sort of the governor of the whole island. But that only happened, that impression was only made after Paul and Barnabas experienced the oppression of Elymas the sorcerer, who followed them around and slandered them fiercely. And then they get up to Pisidian Antioch, and in Pisidian Antioch, Paul preaches this game-changing sermon in the synagogue in which the fringe Gentiles, who are like the backboothers, not really part of anything, they're just kind of watching. In Paul's sermon, these fringe Gentiles were treated as equals to the entrenched Jews. He calls them both brothers and sisters, which led to the establishment of a strong community of Gentile believers willing to forfeit their worship to the Lord Caesar Augustus and begin worshiping the Lord, the true Lord, Jesus Christ. This, of course, is what precipitates the oppression, as the presence of so many Gentiles crowding the Jews out of their own place of worship led to them becoming very jealous. It led to them catcalling Paul as he's giving his next week's sermon. They're shouting down blasphemy against Jesus. They're, they're, They're trying to defame Paul. And eventually it led to persecution, as the apostles were forced out of the region by powerful city leaders serving as puppets for the angry Jewish believers. I mentioned all this last week. However, what I didn't mention was that when it says Paul and Barnabas were expelled from the region of Pisidian Antioch, that doesn't mean they were asked nicely to leave and then listened. What it means is that they were stripped naked in the town square and, unlike Ben Franklin at the window, beaten with rods until their backs were torn open and they were left bloody and wounded. And then, 
Immediately after that beating, they were forced to go on a two-mile march out of the city where they were tossed in the ditch, just disposed of, abandoned in the cold. So no wonder Paul and Barnabas shook the dust off their feet in rejection of Pisidian Antioch after experiencing rejection like that. It wasn't just, hey, you got to go now, and Paul and Barnabas went, oh, okay, let's hit the road, guys. They were beaten and forced to leave. And do you know what the apostles did next? Did they lick their wounds and return to Jerusalem with their tails tucked between their legs? Did they shake their fists at the Holy Spirit for landing them in this predicament? No, of course not. These new believers that they had just made in Pisidian Antioch had been made strong enough to be filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit, despite what they've just seen. Their new leaders come in with this great new message, and they get beaten and flogged and kicked out of the city for it. And how do these new baby believers they've made respond? With joy. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. So Paul and Barnabas know, hey, whatever works. It worked. They were successful. God was glorified, which is the ultimate definition of success for Paul and Barnabas and for us. God was glorified. So it worked. And so Paul and Barnabas picked up their meager supplies and began the 90-mile journey southeast to Iconium, where our passage this morning began. By the way, can you imagine being beaten with rods till you're bloodied and bruised, marched out of the city, and immediately you get up and do a 90-mile march of your own accord? You decide to do that just because you're fueled by this mission? You march 90 miles to the next city, probably by foot, at best on some donkey, which after you're being beaten, I wouldn't want to ride on a donkey for 90 miles. That's, they're supremely dedicated to their goal of winning souls for Jesus Christ. And so that's where we get to the passage we just read, chapter 14. That's where we, we find ourselves. And what are exactly the first words that Luke writes in describing their work in Iconium? It says that they went to the synagogue as usual. As usual. You can see there's a pattern, there's habits forming, there's a routine. They did the same thing when they landed on Cyprus too, in Salamis. The first place they go to is to the synagogues, because that's where people who are ready for the message are, Jews and Gentiles alike. And if they're rejected, then they go to the Gentiles exclusively. That's what happened in Pisidian Antioch. The story of Paul and Barnabas in Iconium is very similar to the story of Paul and Barnabas in Pisidian Antioch. And here's the outline. These are the things that happen in both places. First, they arrive. Then they speak powerfully in the synagogue to both Jew and Gentile alike, which leads to widespread belief in Jesus, which in turn leads to oppression at the hands of Jewish people, riling up and poisoning the minds of Gentiles against the apostles, which then leads to threats of death and the need for Paul and Barnabas to flee to the next town. The story of Paul and Barnabas in Iconium isn't super noteworthy. It's pretty much just a repeat of what happened in chapter 13. And the reason Luke includes that is to show this is a pattern. This is how things worked for Paul and Barnabas. This is how dedicated they were to their goal. It's a pattern. But the question is, again, does it work? Does all of that abuse, does does all of that pain pay off? Are they successful in Iconium as they had been in Pisidian Antioch? And the answer is, yes, absolutely. The gospel message ushered in by the apostles was again incredibly divisive. It was successful, but again, it was incredibly divisive, which is what Jesus meant when he said, do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. Instead, I come to bring a sword. I don't bring peace. I bring a sword. Now, despite what certain lobby groups would have you believe, Jesus is not calling his followers to take up weapons at all. 
And I've heard way too much of this verse being used to defend that bad theology. What he's indicating here is the impact that his disciples will have on the world that they interact with. Wherever Jesus goes, division happens naturally. You can't help it. Either you follow him and become a follower, a disciple, or you reject him and label yourself judged. There's only two choices. The the division is very natural. Jesus didn't come intending for that division. He doesn't want the division. That's not the purpose of his coming. It's just a natural consequence of him being here. Wherever Jesus goes, division happens. He's indicating uh, that the impact his disciples will have on the world creates division. And he goes further in this verse to say, separate husband from wife, parents from children. Like the most intimate social bonds that there are will be divided because some will choose to follow Jesus and others will reject him. Wherever his followers go, wherever his disciples and apostles go, they will stir up the worst in humankind. Wherever Paul and Barnabas go, what follows them? Violence, hatred, murder. Because they bring Jesus to an area. But what else do they bring? Well, they also bring the best elements of life eternal. They bring peace and forgiveness. And over and over in the, in the book of Acts, the word that keeps popping up, rejoicing. That's the other thing that they bring. In Iconium, as in Pisidian Antioch, this division is obvious. We see it, even these seven verses, we see an obvious division. In fact, it says the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. Luke makes it very clear this division will come wherever you go. On one hand, there's this whole nefarious cast of characters, Jew and Gentiles alike, who are planning to stone Paul and Barnabas to death under the authority of city leadership. That's one side of the division. However, on the other side of the division, in the considerable amount of time, and it says Paul and Barnabas spent in Iconium, many believed and were saved before the apostles were run out of town. So I guess you have to say, undeniably, it worked. Whatever works, it worked. It's truly sad and truly unfortunate that the intended audience for this message, the Jewish believers, are predominantly the ones who, who begin this oppression against the apostles. And I'm sure that grieves the father and breaks his heart that it's a message from Jews for Jews and it's Jews predominantly who reject it. Not, not only Jews, there's definitely Gentiles in the mix too. But that, that's just a tragedy to me. Uh, but you cannot deny what Paul and Barnabas were doing worked. One new twist on the Iconium success, as compared to their stay in Antioch, was that in Iconium, Paul and Barnabas, their, their bold preaching was accompanied by what? Signs and wonders. That's right, Trish. Miraculous works. That, that didn't happen in Cyprus, other than the miracle of calling down judgment on Elemis the sorcerer. It doesn't, there's no mention of signs and wonders and miracles happening in Pisidian Antioch, but in Iconium, they were accompanied by miraculous acts. In other words, the Holy Spirit was showing up to confirm the truth of what these Jesus followers are preaching. Paul and Barnabas would say, hey, believe in Jesus, there's this new life available to you, and the Holy Spirit will confirm that with, I don't know, blind people being able to see, um, lame people being able to walk. I, we don't know what the miracles are. But my question is, I'm not sure how you witness a, f- a miracle, like a full-on uh, honest to goodness, no other explanation except the one true God breaking into humanity, miracle. I'm not sure how you witness miracles like that and then turn around and say, hey, let's stone these miracle workers to death. I'm I'm not sure where that comes from. 
when when the truth of your message is being confirmed on high, I'm not sure how you then turn and say, oh, we better stone him. I can't imagine that. Especially being people who are not privy to miracles all the time. It's not something our society sees often. Or perhaps, I should say, we're not good at acknowledging as miracles often. I'm just not sure where that attitude comes from. But the longer that Paul and Barnabas stayed in Iconium, the deeper the division in the city went until the breaking point several months later. They were going to be stoned to death. And sure enough, as was usual in this habit of theirs, Paul and Barnabas have to flee for their lives. But you have to say whatever works, I guess, right? They were successful in Iconium, even as they're fleeing for their lives. By the way, this has nothing to do with anything. So you can turn off your, I can apply this to my heart and change my whole life portion of the sermon. And you can, this is just interesting. And Chris is going to talk about it portion of the sermon. Paul must have left a big impression on the city of Iconium because it's out of the city of Iconium that we have the only physical description of the Apostle Paul in all of history. Um, it was written down about 100 years later. So we're, it's not 100% definitely true, but um, <laughs> this description of Paul, I love because it is a description after my own heart. This is, I, I hear this description and I hear myself. Apparently, Onesiphorus, who was uh, a resident of Iconium, set out to meet Paul and then wrote down his encounter where he said, he beheld a man, small of stature, with a bald head and crooked legs, in a good state of body, with eyebrows meeting and nose somewhat hooked, full of friendliness. (laughs) So apparently Paul was the ancient version of Danny DeVito, (laughs) which is awesome. I just love that the most influential figure in the history of the church was a short, bald man with a unibrow and a hockey nose. Uh, There's hope for me after all. And so anyway, I I think that's cool. That came out of Iconium, out of this story. And so... Forced out of Iconium, our heroes head off down the road to Lystra. They were in, they went from Antioch, about 100 miles to Iconium, and then down to Lystra. So at this point in the sermon, Barb asked a really great question. All these places we're talking about on the map, can we visit them today? No. The uh, Iconium is now called Konya. It's in Turkey. Uh, And Lystra and Derby, all that's left is ruins. They just, in the last century revealed the ruins of those two places so um they know where they are but you can't go to those you can go to them to see them historically but there's not people living there does that make sense it's a good question so they head off 20 miles down the road to lystra we'll talk much more about lystra next week like next week is all about their time in lystra but suffice to say that their ministry in the city was very very successful if anything much much too successful because they begin to be mistaken as Zeus and Hermes, as gods, and worshipped as such. So maybe too successful. But what it leads to is the following. Let's read verses 19 to 20. This is what comes out of their time in Lystra and Derby. Verse 19. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up, and a better translation is he rose up, and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. And if you're wondering where Derby is, here's Derby, right there. Don't you just kind of freak out at how deadpan Luke is about this whole story? With a total straight face, he tells us. Did you notice that the rocks that I had in the background of the title slide, these rocks, 
I picked that as a picture because I want us to imagine a group of several dozen men picking up these rocks and throwing them at you until you are mistaken for dead. That's how badly beaten up you are. Just cuts and broken all over your whole body. So much so that they think you're dead. And then your presumed corpse is unceremoniously dragged out of the city and discarded in the ditch like a dead rat. You're stripped of clothing, stripped of flesh, drained of blood, and drained of dignity. You are just a pathetic shell of a human being at this point. You are a portrait of shame and disgrace. In fact, the men who did this to you are your own people. And they've traveled up to 120 miles away, all the way from Antioch, the first city where you got in trouble. They traveled all the way from there, some 120 miles, just to do this to you by foot. They chased you down and hunted you down like you were a bounty just so they can beat you up and toss you out like human trash. Your own people did this to you. And all that your friend and biographer Luke has to say about it is that you popped up and headed to the next town down the road afterwards. Luke just, he's very blunt about it. I I mean, dumping water on your head to write a beautiful piano melody is one thing. Forsaking beans is one thing. Standing nude in front of your window to ponder electricity is one thing. But being pummeled to death, nearly to death, because of your message of peace and redemption, and then getting up and shuffling on down the road to face the same kind of treatment 20 miles away, that's a whole other level of crazy habits. That's a whole other level of insane routine to put yourself through. Willfully put yourself through. Of course, as simply as verse 20 is recorded by Luke, there are signs of beauty in there. Paul is not abandoned to his death in a ditch. His new brothers and sisters, that's the people who he has shown love to, shown care for, who many of them had just mistaken him for, for Greek gods and are now coming around that, no, this is a human being. Obviously, he's bleeding and dying in the street. And these same people go and they comfort him. And when Luke writes that Paul rose up, you'd better believe that's an allusion to the miraculous rising up from death of Paul's own Lord and Savior. That there's, this isn't just he popped up and he was fine. This was, he was abandoned as dead, as presumed dead, but God did something great, rose him up. The next day, the next day, the next day after this severe beating, Luke is very clear. He's beaten so badly that he looks like he's dead. And the next day, he begins his 60-mile journey to Derby. I can't imagine driving 60 miles in a luxury SUV after being beaten like that. Never mind, again, getting on a donkey and marching that, that, or walking it on foot. That must have been agonizing. And so he presses on forward, even as we read chapter 14 and wonder, why does he do this to himself? Why suffer such abuse? Couldn't there be another way to do this? Well, Paul and Barnabas' enthusiasm for the mission ahead of them couldn't be quenched by stones or threat of death. No wound or humiliation would be as deep as the wound of abandonment or the humiliation of caving to fear. If he gave, if he gave in now, how much of a failure would, would Paul feel like? Yeah, Barb? And at this point, Barb made the really great point, are we supposed to connect what's happening to Paul and Barnabas here to what happened to Jesus? Are there similarities that we're supposed to catch? Yeah, absolutely, Barb. This I think we're supposed to see, actually, kind of the point of this whole thing is yeah, we're supposed to identify Jesus in all of this. The his 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 last week of life, entering into a city 
exalted and praised and then dismissed a week later by the same people shouting, crucify him, crucify him, and then marching this unfair path to an unfair, unjust death. Absolutely, we're supposed to see Jesus in this because that's what's happening to Paul and Barnabas. Every city they go into, they preach a powerful sermon and they're welcome. They're celebrated. People come to know Jesus. And then weeks or months later, those same people are saying, stone him to death. Get rid of him. Absolutely, we're supposed to see Jesus. And also, I think with this in mind, that nothing is going to stop Paul from, from proclaiming Jesus, I think we can begin to understand why he was so ticked off at Mark, at John Mark, right? Because John Mark abandoned them. At, as soon as they landed in Perga, Mark's out of there. And so you can kind of understand why, why Paul would be mad at him. But here's the good news. The good news is that there is relief ahead for the battered apostles. Let's read the last portion of our, our passage, 21 to 28. They preached the good news in that city, and that's Derby, and won a large number of dis- disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, I'm not sure how to, Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and, with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord, in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. Um, Side note, when I was a teenager and I read this for the first time, I thought, one day I'm going to have a daughter and I'm going to name her Italia. I thought it was the prettiest name. That didn't happen, so clearly not a prophet. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how they had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there for a long time with the disciples. So that is a very happy ending. Every ending to every city they've been in has been unhappy, but now they get a happy ending. The city of Derby was mercifully uneventful for Paul and Barnabas. All we know is that they preached the gospel there. We have no record of unruly mobs or public beatings or jealous rivals. The pattern was a little bit broken in Derby. There was, however, success. Verse 21 tells us that they made many disciples. So that must have been, that must have felt like this real respite for Paul and Barnabas to go to the city, convert a lot of people and not have to flee for your life after. That must have been really nice. After Derby, Paul and Barnabas decide to retrace their steps. Again, I'm not sure this is a decision that I would have the backbone to make. Let's go through the checklist of cities that they are now returning to. Lystra, nearly stoned to death there. Iconium, fled because they were again nearly stoned to death. Antioch, exiled after being severely beaten. And these are the places they are choosing to go back to. Right, marching right back into those same people. I mean, those cities are still filled with synagogues full of Jewish people who hate them and want to kill them. Probably some of the leadership of the city has turned over, and so maybe there's, there's a second chance there. But regardless, they're going back to places. If, you, if the last time you went to Edmonton, you had a whole crowd of people hunt your car down and beat you with sticks, would you want to go to West Edmonton Mall the next week? I wouldn't. I probably would. I, I like that mall. But I would be hesitant, at least. In each of these cities, there are tirelessly angry Jews ready to crush these interlopers once and for all. Just get rid of them. These enemies had even become something like missionaries of their own, little anti-Paul bounty hunters who tracked him down 100 miles later to, to beat him again. And, yes. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Never mind me wanting to go back to West Edmonton Mall. There's clearly this clearly had they were not afraid of any of this. They were not afraid of stones. They were not afraid of exile. They were not afraid of angry, unruly mobs. Clearly. Even though there was people there were ready to mount their head on the synagogue wall as a warning to all these foolish Gentiles who keep flocking to this Jew. Even with Paul and Barnabas gone, even though they kicked them out of the city, Gentiles keep flocking to Jesus. And I'm sure that just confounded the Jewish people who hated this message. Um, Paul and Barnabas were aware of all this. They were aware that because of what they had brought, Gentiles were now suffering. Dave? And at this point, Dave makes a really good point that probably what urged Paul and Barnabas on is the exact same thing that they are saying to these disciples they're returning to, that they must go through many trials to enter the kingdom of heaven, which is exactly what it says in verse 22. I love that the people in my church just interrupt me to make good points. Yeah. I, to, to go there in the first place and break the ground is hard enough, but to then go back and retrace your steps to where you know you're hated, I... At this point, Trish makes the comment that they probably drew a lot of strength from the fact that they were successful, that even though they were experiencing such hardships, it was working. Absolutely. Do you know why I'm smiling? Because you guys are preaching my sermon for me. All the points of this whole passage, you guys are way ahead of me, and I'm, I'm glad for that. You get it. You see it. And I'm really pleased for that. They, they decide to visit all of these places. It's like... They're on their way home, but they take the long way to, to revisit all these places where they had been hated. It's like if I decided to go to Calgary and I went to the Gopher Hole Museum and I went to Callaway Park on my way with, down with my family. What fun! Except I might get stoned to death in any of these places for going back. From what I understand of the Gopher Hole Museum, you have to be stoned to appreciate the Gopher Hole Museum. It's a very weird place. But yet again, we're left asking, why, Paul? Why do this to yourself? Is it really worth the abuse and humiliation and risk to life and limb? Is it really worth it? And to that, Paul would and did reply, yes, yes, it's worth it. Whatever works, it's worth it. See, breaking ground with the gospel was only part one of the mission. That was only half of the job. And that half of the mission had been terrifically successful. Along with the scars of a flogging and a stoning, Paul could also demonstrate the marks of a Holy Spirit active in the lives of those who had never had access to the Holy Spirit before. Sure, he had bruises and marks on his body, but he also had signs that the Holy Spirit is active and working in these Gentiles' lives. So, just like Trish said, absolutely that would fuel them and strengthen them. Paul himself captures this best in the letter that he wrote to these very same baby Christians in Antioch, Lystra, Iconium, and Derbe. He wrote a letter to these people. We call that letter the letter to the... Not Corinthians, good guess... Galatians, right? And in Galatians 6, Paul writes, Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Doesn't that, isn't that exactly what Paul's doing here? He is refusing to give up. He is not being, he refuses to become weary in doing good. The day after he's beaten almost to death, he gets up and heads down the road. He refuses to give up. He will not become weary in doing good. And everywhere he goes, he sows, he plants these seeds of the Holy Spirit. He finishes the letter by writing, I bear on my body the mark of Jesus. That's the second last verse. That's how he closes 
the letter to the Galatians. I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. That marks of Jesus, that's the word stigmata. You've probably heard that word before. A mark that shows your devotion, your absolute devotion to Jesus. Well, our theme this morning has been whatever works. It may seem crazy, but if it gets results, then go for it. Paul knew what he was getting into. He knew the cost of discipleship, and that cost was you had to carry your own cross. Jesus had taught that a number of times. To follow me, you will suffer. And, and Paul knew that. And so those are the marks of Jesus that he writes about in Galatians 6.17. The bruises, the scars, the bones that are, are, are reset crooked. Everything about his body, the limp that he has. Everything about his physical anguish. Those are all marks of Jesus. He worked tirelessly and he refused to give up, as it says here in Galatians 6. Along with Barnabas, by the way, I, I keep saying Paul. Paul's the one who got stoned almost to death, but Barnabas was right there with him. And so along with Barnabas, uh, Paul planted the Holy Spirit in fertile ground. But again, that's only the first half of the mission. Planting the seeds tirelessly, relentlessly, never giving up, never ceasing to do good. That breaking of ground is only step one. The second half of the mission was to return under threat of death and water the seeds and fertilize the seeds and trim the strangling weeds away from the seeds so that the newly planted churches could fully thrive and grow and blossom under the new leadership that Paul and Barnabas appointed before they left. Part one, break the ground. You farmers know this. After you break the ground and plant the seed, though, do you just walk away? No, there's work that has to be done even after it's planted. You have to take care of those seeds, and that's exactly what Paul and Barnabas do. And so if the theme is whatever works, it's hard to argue that Paul's insane habit of putting himself in situations where proclaiming the message of Jesus led to threats of severe harm, it's hard to argue that that was unsuccessful in any way. It absolutely was successful. And you can hear it in the message that he brings to all these new baby Christians in verse 22, which Dave reread for us, where Paul says, Paul and Barnabas, they gather, they go to these churches that they've been to, and they encourage them, and their encouragement is this, it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. It's through many trials, tribulations, pains, suffering, oppression that you must enter the kingdom of God. Suffering, I don't think we do this enough, especially in the Western church. Suffering, along with repentance, along with baptism, along with fellowship with with other Christians, along with communion, suffering is a rite of passage into the kingdom. It's a necessary step. It cannot be avoided as Jesus so frequently promised us. Suffering will come because you love him, but that suffering will confirm your faith. It will unite you with your Jesus. Paul himself wrote about this many times. Here's just one. We share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Romans 8. That's not you might suffer and then possibly you'll be united with Jesus. That's you must suffer in order to be like Jesus. And that doesn't mean you'll you'll. Next time you go to Westlock, next time you go to independent grocery store, you'll be stoned to death. There's, that's not the only kind of suffering there is. There are many, in fact, where is it here? What verse is it? 22? In verse 22, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Not one kind of suffering, many kinds of suffering to enter the kingdom of God. But here's what's exciting about the story of Acts 14. What's exciting is that the blood and sweat and tears, blood, sweat, and tears, all the different ways you can agonize in committing your life to something, each blood, each drop of sweat, each tear, 
that we shed in suffering for Jesus is exactly the thing that nourishes the next crop of Christians. There's a famous quote that the church is, is, the church is fed through the blood of the martyrs. I forget who said it. I should probably know. The church is fed through the blood of the martyrs. That's the thing that fuels the church, is, is the witness and the faithfulness of those who make the ultimate sacrifice. Just so you know, the quote is by Tertullian, and the actual quote is, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The more you know. Paul is encouraging men and women who will soon be suffering themselves if they aren't already, saying, you must, don't worry about your suffering. You have to suffer. In your suffering, you are made fully united with Jesus. And so Paul knows that these new baby Christians need to see the example of a man, a faithful man, who rejoices even after he's beaten by rods. They need to see a man who rises up like Jesus himself after his enemies beat him down. They need to see that the world can beat you with stones, but they cannot extinguish your fiery love for God and for neighbor alongside. No stone could do that. And so it's not just the new converts who need to hear this encouragement. We need to hear it, obviously. But the sending church in Antioch waited over a year to hear how Paul and Barnabas' mission was going, and they needed to hear it. They had sent Paul and Barnabas out. They knew they were going to Cyprus. They may not have known anywhere that they went after that. And so they were waiting eagerly to hear reports of how it went. And so at the end of this crazy, genius missions trip to the Gentiles, the apostles gathered with their commissioning church and shared with joy all that had happened. After listening to all the Paul and Barnabas, let me try that again. And after listening to all that Paul and Barnabas had to report with thankful smiles and rejoicing hearts, each member of the Antiochian church took turns placing their hands tenderly on Barnabas. Jeez, now I'll never not say it. This was supposed to be a nice closing sentence. Now it's all messed up. But after listening to all of their reports with thankful smiles and rejoicing hearts, each member of the church would put their hands on poor Barnabas. His shoulders had been beaten and whipped open. They put their hands tenderly on his shoulders and they looked meaningfully into Paul's broken and battered face, an apparently uni-browed face. And they, they shook their heads gently to them and they smiled softly and they said, you suffered greatly to glorify God, but hey, whatever works, Jesus is worth it indeed. And absolutely, Paul and Barnabas would have confirmed, yes, whatever works, it was worth it. So that's, that's a pretty tall call that we are called to, the call to suffer for Jesus' name in order to make other people convinced that this is the life that they should be living. Jack? And the last story told by a member of the church uh, during the sermon was of a preacher in East Germany who was beaten and thrown in prison. And then after the wall came down, many of those people who oppressed him uh, became members of his church and his church is thriving today. So it's a really great story and a reminder of exactly what we were talking about all sermon long. Right, yeah. Yeah, there's... If you read the stories of the martyrs, there's story after story of the people who had assaulted and oppressed them become believers because they see the witness of grace and forgiveness even despite that. They didn't fight back. They didn't pick up a sword and fight back. In fact, when Peter did that, when Jesus was being arrested, Jesus rebuked him harshly. Put that sword away. You don't know what you're doing. If you fight with the sword, you'll die by the sword. Um, and so lots of people were convinced that that the, the truth of the message of Jesus's salvation, they were convinced of the truth because of the forgiveness of those who died at their hands. Yeah, that's that's a really powerful story. Um, it's okay to suffer. It's good to suffer. 
in fact, it's hard to say it's good to suffer, but there is a lot of potential for good in suffering, I guess is the best way to say it. Good for ourselves, as Trisha said, it it strengthens us and, and firms up our resolve, and good for the people around us who witness our suffering and see us still rejoicing, as Paul and Barnabas did, still demonstrating a divine love for people tirelessly, fearlessly, no matter what we face. There's all kinds of potential to our suffering. And in the end, hopefully we can say, you know what, whatever works, it worked. God is good and God is glorified. Let's pray. Father God, it is well with our soul. Um, When we suffer, I pray that we would turn to you, as Paul and Barnabas did, that we uh, we would see others being glorified because of our dedication and our commitment despite suffering. Father, I don't ask for suffering, but I do pray that when we suffer, we would use it as an opportunity to bring glory to you. That's our ultimate goal, our ultimate mission, to bring you glory and to show love to people around us. And I pray that when we suffer, we would be able to do that well. Jesus, you understand suffering better than any of us. You know what it is to be abandoned, treated unjustly, and murdered. You, You know all of that. And so, you will rise us up, raise us up, if, if we turn to you in our suffering. And I pray you would do just that. We pray all these things in your powerful name, Jesus. Amen. Apparently, Paul was the ancient version of Danny DeVito, which is awesome. Uh, there's hope for me after all.